Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. Morning, church. How are we doing? All right. Good to hear. I woke up this morning pretty confident. I was like, you know what? I think I'm finally getting the hang of this newborn dad thing. I'm feeling like rejuvenated this morning. I'm feeling energetic. I'm feeling on top of the world. And then Em reminded me that it was the end of daylight savings. I'd had an extra hour sleep. So pride comes before a fall, but that's all right. We're here. We're feeling like we got an extra hour sleep and it's good to be here this morning. We are continuing through our series of the cross in the Gospels. Last week, we looked at Mark, which I kind of described as like the Rocky Balboa of the four Gospels. You know, the first half of it, it's like an action montage. It's just event after event, miracle after miracle. Jesus is healing, he's feeding, he's casting out demons. And today we're looking at Matthew. Uh, Matthew, as we kind of mentioned last week, really relied on a lot of the source material of Mark in his gospel. Um, we kind of established this last week, but just for those of you who maybe missed it, uh, Mark, we are pretty confident, was written first of the four gospels, then Matthew comes second, uh, Luke pretty close to Matthew just shortly after, and then John is our sort of last gospel as far as chronologically written. Uh, and when we start to look at the source material of the three synoptic gospels, which is just a really fancy word that people say to make themselves feel smart, essentially synoptic synopsis. These three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have a very similar synopsis in the story of Jesus that they tell. You can kind of see there between the three of them, um, Mark has 76% of um, material which sort of crosses over in Matthew and Luke. Luke 41%, Matthew 46%. There's a huge chunk of each of these Gospels that cross over each other, hence why they're referred to as the synoptic Gospels. Then we see, interestingly, Matthew and Luke actually share about a quarter of content that isn't in Mark, but they have in common. And then each of them have 35% for Luke and 20% for Matthew. Um, unique material to each one. But I think this is really important to know and understand on how the Gospels were building, how they're building on each other, and how they're actually related to each other. So the question is, if Mark was written first chronologically, and we know this, why isn't it the first in the New Testament? It's a good question, right? Why isn't it just put out chronologically Mark first? Well, to be honest, we don't know exactly, but there's a pretty good theory which goes, Matthew is sort of this excellent linchpin between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. It connects the Old Testament Jewish story to the New Testament of what Jesus was doing, bringing the gospel to the nations. And this is why we suppose that Matthew goes first. And Matthew is sort of, if Mark is maybe the Rocky Balboa of the four Gospels, Matthew is maybe the, you know, Woody Allen of the four Gospels. He's very Jewish. Just think of the most Jewish person you can think of. That's Matthew. He has more prophecy um, sort of quotes than any of the four Gospels. And constantly throughout his Gospel narrative, he is a Jewish Christian 
writing to other Jewish Christians. So what do we know about Matthew? Well, he was also named Levi. He was one of the 12 disciples. He was a tax collector, which meant he was very educated. He actually was literate, so he could read and write, which, you know, for first century was a lot more impressive than it is today. It's sort of just an expected thing. But so he was this very meticulous Jewish scholar who was able to kind of bring these stories together in a very organized fashion to make a clear story for Christian Jews about Jesus. So Matthew, time and time again, his gospel kind of shows us both directly and indirectly that he's writing to a Jewish audience originally. That doesn't mean it has no value for us today, on the contrary. But we see, for example, Matthew quite often refers to the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God, because for the Jews, speaking God's name was a sin, right? We see time and time again in Mark, Mark explains Jewish customs like ceremonial washing, temple tax. He explains what the Pharisees' dresses are, these sort of chief or these priests of the Jewish faith. Matthew just assumes you know all this. He just assumes that you know about the temple tax. He assumes you know about the ceremonial washing. He assumes that you know about the tassels and the phylacteries, part of the the Pharisees' outfit. So suddenly we're seeing a very different audience that Matthew is pitching this to. And Matthew's gospel essentially makes us ask, is it pro-Jewish or is it anti-Jewish? Because at moments, he's being lifted up, Jesus, as this sort of continuation of the Jewish story. But at other points, I mean, Jesus rips into the Pharisees in Matthew. Like, for instance, in Mark, Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees is kind of just a short couple of sentences. But in Matthew, he calls them whitewashed tombs, greedy hypocrites, murderers, sons of vipers. Like, he's not holding back. So, is Matthew pro-Jewish or anti-Jewish? And the answer is yes. It's both, right? It's a critique on the Jews who had lost the point of what God had been saying to them, but it's also kind of a love letter to Jews who want to continue to step into the promise that God has been establishing since the first pages of the Old Testament. And we can see this by the way that Mark and Matthew open. In Mark 1.1, He writes the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But Matthew does probably the two biggest name drops that you could do in Jewish culture, right? From the outset, from the first sentence in his gospel. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? He's trying to build up Jesus' CV, right? Straight away for a Jewish audience because immediately... It's starting to build respect, starting to build authority for Jewish Christian readers. But it's not only in his words that Matthew is establishing this sort of legitimacy for Jesus. It's also in the structure of his book. So what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is in the center of the book, Jesus gives five teachings which are meant to mirror the five books that, according to Jewish tradition, Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And it's this idea that time and time again in Matthew's Gospel, not as directly most of the time as he connects Jesus to Abraham and David, but through structure and through illusion, suggestion, he's connecting Jesus to Moses 
as well. We'll bring up the table. We see all these times, time and time again, that Jesus is shown not only as a new Moses, but as a better Moses. So for example, as we know, Moses and the Israelites came up out of Egypt. And Matthew is the only gospel that mentions the story of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fleeing to Egypt and then coming back out of Egypt. And Matthew makes a big point of this. He refers to a prophecy in Hosea to further support this claim. And then we see that obviously Moses crossed through the Red Sea. Well, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, which is the river that Joshua and the Israelites cross, right, as sort of a mirroring of Moses. We see that Jesus wandered through the wilderness for 40 days and was uh, resisted temptation from the devil. We see that Moses and the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and grumbled and failed, as we know. We see that Moses received law from a mountain on top of Mount Sinai, but Jesus now gives law from a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving this new law. He's not just a new Moses. He is a better Moses. You see that God established an old covenant with Israel through Moses as God's mouthpiece, but now we see that Jesus establishes a new covenant, not just with Israel, but all of humanity. And as I've already mentioned, we've got the five books of the Torah, which mirror these five chunks of teachings that Jesus gives in Matthew. So why is this all important? Like, Why was it important to first century Jews? And furthermore, why is it important to 21st century Gentiles? I'm assuming apologies to any Jews in the audience. So what's going on here? This is not an accident. Jesus is being set up as a better Abraham, a better Moses, and a better David. And each of these figures, each of these Jewish patriarchs, father figures that Jesus is not just fulfilling, but succeeding, is making a different point about what it now means for not just Jewish Christians, but all Christians who choose to follow Jesus. So let's break that down this morning. Let's look at what it means that Matthew is telling us that Jesus is a better Abraham, a better Moses, a better David. And then let's see what it means for us today, right? Sound good? Awesome. So, Let's first look at what it means for Jesus being a better David. So Matthew uses the title Son of David in his gospel more than any other writer. He uses it 10 times throughout his gospel, which is quite a few times, right, for a book that only has 28 chapters. And it's actually used six times uniquely in Matthew of that 10. So he way outquotes any other gospel writer for the son of David. He's setting Jesus up, not just in the genealogy at the start, but time and time again throughout his gospel as the son of David. So what does it mean to be the son of David? Well, probably as a lot of us know, this term pointed to the Messiah, the Jewish king who was going to come and redeem and save and I suppose rescue Israel, reestablish Israel as a powerful kingdom. So let's look at the prophecy that sort of David receives in 2 Samuel 7, which summarizes this idea of this dynasty that God promises him. So in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, King David is told, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He's the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this idea of a son of David who's going to establish a throne that lasts forever continues to build throughout the Old Testament. Because by the time we get to the Psalms, we're seeing that this eternal throne of David isn't just an earthly throne. It's so much more than that. In Psalm 2, 4 to 7, the psalmist writes, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, for those of us who are maybe not super familiar with Mount Zion, this was the place where God's throne was on earth. This was the place where heaven and earth kiss. This was the place where the God of heaven sat. And the idea that God is promising to establish David's son's throne on Mount Zion is saying, I'm not just going to give you authority on earth. I'm going to give you heavenly authority. This is so much bigger than any throne that we know on this earth. This is one that connects, gives authority over both heaven and earth. And this is so important, obviously, when we come to the figure of Jesus. Because despite God's promise to David that he would establish his throne forever, David abuses his powers. And through that mistake, that sin, that falling short, he brings in internal family conflict of murder and incest Kind of all the things you probably wouldn't want to bring into your family if you're trying to like establish a lineage, a family throne, an empire and kingdom forever, right? Like murder and incest probably isn't going to lead to a real healthy future family dinner, okay? And this is this idea that David is falling short of this messianic promise, this promise that his son and his children after him will reign on an everlasting throne, but we see in this moment, grace. We see in this moment an opportunity for David to become an intermediary sacrifice. Bit of a big word, big, big phrase. Essentially what it means is David, in this moment, recognises his sin right at the end of his story in 2 Samuel 24. And he steps in as an offering to cover the cost of sin for his people. See, what happens near the end of two kings, David's starting to get a little bit maybe anxious, maybe a little bit, I don't know, scared, maybe even a little bit paranoid that his children or his son is going to strip everything away from him. And what happens is he starts relying on his own strength rather than God's. And he starts counting his men and he starts getting possessive. And he starts thinking that he's going to secure this eternal throne, this eternal kingdom forever through his own military might and power, not through trusting God as he, for the most part, has. And then he does something that David actually does really, really well throughout the whole story of 1 and 2 Samuel. He repents. If you want to look how to repent well, David's a pretty good model to look for. And at this point, right at the end, the final chapter of 2 Samuel 24, David says, oh, sorry, it reads, when David saw the angel who was striking down his people, 
right? The cost of the sin that he had committed. He said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. See, he's not just saying, take me out. He's saying that messianic promise that you gave me, that promise that my kingdom would reign eternal through my family, wipe out me and my family. Everything that you promised me, everything that you've given me, take it all away. I am not worthy. But David is able to keep his crown. He's able to hold on to that promise of a future throne that will reign forever in heaven and earth. See, in Matthew, Jesus gives up his throne. He comes down to earth and he takes on a new throne in the shape of a crucifix. He puts aside his crown. And the offer that David makes to cover the sin of all people, Jesus makes even though it's not deserved. He takes on this new throne, and this is the way that Matthew sets Jesus up as fulfilling this messianic downfall that David fell short on. So then we jump to Matthew, Jesus' last words to his disciples, and we see that maybe the Great Commission has more weight and more depth into it than we originally realize as Gentile 21st century readers. Because when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he's not talking about any new news. This is old news. This is something that's been established since David and coming through him. And it's because this authority of not only being a perfect king on earth, but a perfect king in heaven, that he then has authority to send us out. That's why it's important that Jesus is the new David because it gives him not only heavenly but earthly authority to send us out. So let's look at Jesus being a better Abraham. What does that mean? Well, the sort of classic Abrahamic promise, the covenant that gets made to Abraham from God is in Genesis 12. And God says, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I was listening to a podcast this week. It was an interview with Adam McKay, who's the writer and director of Don't Look Up and a bunch of other really clever, funny films. And he was talking about growing up in America as a Christian. And essentially what happened was, at about 16 years old, he came across the story of Abraham being told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he said, for me, that was the point where I was like, nah, I don't want to worship this God. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to worship a God who's so evil and vindictive that he would ask somebody as a test to kill his own son. And then at the last second goes, just kidding. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I don't want to worship that God. And you know what? On face value, he's kind of got a good point, right? Like it's a kind of crazy story when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But what happens is we get this misunderstanding when we don't see what's happened before this story with Abraham. See, Abraham was a very flawed guy. He's given this promise that through his wife, Sarah, him and her are going to establish a nation. He's going to have children more numerous than the stars and that this family will become a blessing to all nations. And yet, Abraham and Sarah are quite old 
In fact, they're really old and they're struggling to fall pregnant. So they stopped trusting in God's promise. They stopped trusting in God's life-giving power and they take matters into their own hands. So instead, Abraham sleeps with his slave, Hagar, which leads to a whole bunch of problems where essentially now he's got this somewhat illegitimate son of Ishmael who's not the son who was promised by God, but a son that is from his own design, his own doing. And then later in the story, Sarah gets really jealous of Ishmael and Hagar and she kind of talks Abraham into exiling them out into the wilderness where, I mean, essentially they're given a sack of water and left to die. It's only through the supernatural providence of God that they find water and don't die and survive. We see time and time again, Abraham uses his wife, Sarah, this promised mother of Israel, to save his own skin. He pushes her on the king of Egypt to save himself. He lies and says, she's not my wife, she's my sister. He pushes her on Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, saying, she's not my wife. Time and time again, this promise that God has given Abraham is spitting in God's face. So by the time we get to this story where God is testing Abraham, He's saying, hold on, man, you've fallen short time and time and time and time again. Why should I trust you? Why should I trust you? By this point, Abraham has finally been given this son through Sarah, Isaac. And it's at this point that we see Genesis 22. It reads, when they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me your son, your only son, which it's not his only son because he has Ishmael. But it's the only son through which this promise is going to come. See, Jesus came as a perfect son, an unblemished sacrifice, one who was going to become a blessing to all nations through his sacrifice on a cross. Where Abraham fell short with his son, Jesus came to fulfill perfectly as the perfect son, as the perfect sacrifice, to fulfill that Abrahamic promise of then being a blessing to all nations. And it comes up when we look at the Great Commission. Matthew 28, once again, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, just as I promised Abraham long ago, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, we know why it's important that Jesus is a new and better David. We know why it's important that Jesus is a new and better Abraham. Why is it important that he's a new and better Moses? Let's check it out. So far, we've been looking at the promises that these characters have been given by God. What's the promise that God gives to Moses? Well, we see it in Exodus 3, 12. It says, And God said, I will be with you 
And you will be a sign, oh sorry, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. He promises Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression, you will worship God on this mountain, on Mount Sinai. You will worship this God on this mountain and it will be the sign that I have used you to free my people from Egypt. But as we know, doesn't necessarily go as intended. And this act of freedom, this sign of their liberation from slavery to worship on a mountain, instead ends up manifesting itself in the Israelites, not on the top of the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain. Worshipping golden statue that they've made by their own hands. See, God had freed them but they're going straight back into sin. They're going straight back into slavery by their own design. So suddenly this promise of freedom, of liberation, of hope is marred by this golden calf. And we see that God isn't happy. So what do you think happens? Well, not unlike the story of Abraham and Isaac, not unlike the story of King David, God needs to cover this sin. We see in Exodus 32, 31 to 32, Moses is going back to the Lord as an intermediary sacrifice. He goes up to the mountain and he says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive them their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. See, Moses wasn't promised a son that would go out and be a blessing to all nations and a, a lineage that would bless the whole world. He wasn't promised an eternal throne. God's gift to him was the word, the law. That was God's gift to Moses. And Moses is saying, kill me and blot me out of that law, that book that you have given me. Take me out of it. I don't deserve this gift. I don't deserve this blessing. I don't deserve my life. I need to cover the sins of these people who have been led astray once again, who have undone, who have undermined, who have ruined this promise that you have given me. And my people. He was promised to lead the Israelites out of slavery, and yet they go back to their old ways. Because, see, Moses was the mouthpiece for God. He was supposed to lead them into freedom. And while Moses was just a mouthpiece, well, Jesus was the Word made flesh. He was God's living word. Every fiber of his being, every atom of him was God's word incarnate. He wasn't a representation of the word of God. He was the actual word. And it was this word who by dying on a cross would free the world, not from the slavery of Egypt, but as Mitch said earlier in communion, from the slavery of sin an act that wouldn't be able to be undone, an eternal grace. And this is the good news that we're then told to proclaim to the world. 
Let's go one final time to the Great Commission. Jesus says to his disciples, his final words in the Gospel of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because I am a better David. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because I am a better Abraham and I am a better Isaac. And teaching them, just as Moses did, to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. I might just call the band up. This great commission isn't just some freestyle words that Jesus decided to spurt out at the end. It's not just a little footnote at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It is the whole point of Matthew's Gospel. So that's our commission this morning, church. With the authority of Jesus Christ from both heaven and earth, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Because surely through God's Spirit, He is with us to the very end of the age. Let us pray. God, you are so much greater than we could imagine. You're so much greater than we could understand. Jesus, thank you that you came to fulfill the law, to fulfill the story, the love story that you had been telling with humanity since the very first page of the Bible. God, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning who wants to taste some of that love, taste some of that goodness, taste some of that hope that you still offer right now this morning. That they would pray these words in their heart right now. Jesus, I give you my life. That's all it takes. If there's somebody in this congregation this morning, if there's somebody watching online, whether now, in a day's time, in a week's time, in a year's time, Lord, and they're hearing these words right now, Jesus, I pray that they're excited to see your fulfillment, to see your love, to see your hope, to see your everlasting kingdom of heaven and earth. And they want to get on board. Jesus, I give you my life. That's all it takes this morning. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the worship. We thank you for the celebrating. But God, we recognize that there's people in pain in this congregation, people who aren't fully tasting the fulfillment of this great commission, aren't fully tasting the goodness of you. Lord, I pray that they would seek prayer up the back in the prayer corner. I pray that they'd be brave enough to tap someone on the shoulder, ask for prayer. I pray that they would continue to seek your face, God. A God who sits on a throne of an everlasting kingdom, who has authority over heaven and earth, and who humbled himself to fulfill the story that was being written from the start of eternity. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.